guys. Good morning. How y'all doing? Everybody good? Before we start this morning, uh, we just, just want to take a few minutes uh, to recognize those in education. So if you are a, a teacher, uh, coach, counselor, administrator, I don't know, if you serve kids in school, um, will you come up here? I'm sorry, this is weird. It feels awkward, but once you get here, it'll be great. Cool, we have the one. We have the two. It's not an altar call. Like, there's no pressure on you right now. We, we, we thought it was going to be more robust than this, frankly, I think. Um, okay. This isn't going as planned, Gabe. Um, what we want to do is, school starts back, and for, for you guys, you're probably already back, but as a church, like, if you've been around for a while, you, you've seen the demographics of our church shift. I mean, we were even joking earlier this morning that like a couple years ago, it was like just the Dodd kids, you know, and that was it. And slowly, God has been really faithful uh, to our church, and there's been more and more children. And part of that has to do with how the church embraces family. Everything we do is within the family context, but it's not just here. It's also as these two servants, the only servants that we have in our church, who go out into uh, the schools and serve well, right? I mean, and we all serve in different environments and different realms uh, within our community, but teachers specifically have a very unique responsibility, a a different type of burden that they carry. And so we just want to take a minute uh, to pray over them. So if you join me, I'm going to pray uh, over our teachers and uh, as they get ready for school. And I know our kids are, uh, they're excited, but really disappointed that summer's over. Several educators helping out in the children. They're all there. That's where they are. They're all in there, continuing to serve. So uh, let's just take a minute to pray over them, okay? Father, we love you. Uh, We're so thankful for uh, the faithfulness of the servants who teach our kids and who guide our kids, who invest in our children. And we pray specifically for the teachers who are within the church, who carry a different type of responsibility into the school environment as they are beacons of hope and light, stewards of the gospel. And so we pray that you'd give them uh, many opportunities to point uh, kids Uh, high schoolers, college students, um, to the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. And so we pray just as uh, as they get ready for the hustle and the grind of an August school start, um, that you'd give them the rest that they need over the coming week and then really give them the energy, the patience, uh, specifically for uh, the teachers who are in the classroom, that they would just love these students well. We pray specifically, Lord, for the teachers who are here and call the branch home, that we would together partner with them to equip their classrooms, to support them in any way that they might need it. And God, we're so thankful that you've blessed our church with faithful, humble servants. So we love you, we pray for these, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Make sure, if you see somebody that wasn't in here, that we did that. Let them know. It's important. All right, we're continuing uh, this morning in our series on the Apostles' Creed. We're coming quickly to uh, the end. As school year starts, we're going to jump back into Hebrews in just a handful of weeks. And so uh, what we want to do this morning is continue along with the Apostles' Creed. So uh, we've done this each week, but I do want to read it. What was brought to my attention last time is that there are different versions, right? Just like we all have different translations of the Bible, there are different translations of the Apostles' Creed. So what I want to do is I want to read it over you again, um, but I'm going to turn my back and read from here so we're tracking, right? So I'm using the same words that you're seeing, okay? So listen to this. This is the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This morning, we specifically talk through the line, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I want to make a couple of promises this morning. Uh, I'm not going to preach for over an hour. I promise. Okay. Gabe texted me. We were gone uh, last week. Megan and I were uh, in Arizona for the weekend. I had some work to do uh, Monday, and uh, so we weren't here. And I get a text, and he said, hour 10, bro. And I was like, what do you, well, I had no idea the context, so we're not going to do that. I'm going to try to give you back some time that he stole from me last week, and uh, we're going to go through. There's a lot of, uh, there's a serious robustness in this line, isn't there? From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Basically, I know it seems like fancy language, but he will come is really the promise that we see in the Apostles' Creed. It's what we need to remember. Our belief is he will come. Right From whence he shall come is a fancy way to say he will come. Okay, We did this uh, when we were talking about Pontius Pilate. This was a few weeks ago. But we were trying to define what it looks like for the Apostles' Creed to be the, the architecture of our faith, of our belief, of our theology. Right, And we kind of we leaned on Tozer of the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. So without having to go back through all of that, I think what we need to do again is just to be reminded of what the Apostles' Creed is is, right? And I think the best way for us to think well about the Apostles' Creed is less that it is parameters, right? Less that it is the playing field and more that it is the foundation, okay? I think it is true for us to say that every professing Christian, so every person who claims Jesus to be their Lord, must believe these things. Now, they can believe some other things, right? They can believe beyond, but they cannot believe less, does that make sense? And this is what unites us as Christians around the globe throughout time, Okay, so we are not unique in the in the statement that we follow and we adhere to the Apostles Creed. Most Orthodox Christian faiths, denominations, however you want to divide it up, would say, yes, we believe these things. What makes us different is what we what we slap around the Apostles Creed. Right. So then the playing field that we define, we're saying, hey, as long as you're staying within this, these parameters, this is Christian faith. Right. So this is the the Apostles Creed really is the foundation of what we believe right? So when we go through, I think it's important for us to, to, to really understand that we must think rightly about God. Specifically, and I'm going to tie this into our family groups, okay? We're about to kick those off soon, right? Within the next couple of weeks, all of our family groups will be back in. If you're not in a family group, get in a family group, okay? There's the plug. I think there'll be an official announcement later. Here's the unofficial one. If you're not in a family group, I'm not joking. Get in a family group. This is where we really begin to chew this stuff up, as a community, as brothers and sisters, to understand, okay, what does God have for us? What is he trying to say through his text? How do we deal with it in community? And then what do we do? Okay? That is what we're doing in family group. But specifically, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand God's nature and his character. The first question we ask every week, every single week, is what does it say about God? Okay? So when we jump back into Hebrews, we're going to read a text of Hebrews. 
Okay? And then the first question you're, the people in your group are going to ask is, what does it say about God? Because that is the most important thing that we can talk about. Then we're going to move on. Okay, what does it say about us as Christians? What does it say about us as a church, right? That middle bracket is like, okay, now, now that we know what it says about who God is and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, what do we do? And then we're going to finish our conversations around, okay, what does that mean for the people around us? What does that mean for the community around us? What does it mean for the world abroad? People who don't know Jesus. That is what a family group does, okay? We call it family group because we don't know what else to call it, but that is the, that is the playbook, okay? What does it say about God? What does it say about us? And what does it say about those who aren't here yet, okay? So if you're not in one, get in one because this is what we do here, all right? So we must think well about God's nature and his character. We do that certainly in community, But God has left us with his word, and his word was designed to reveal himself to us, okay? So we joke a lot because we're in uh, August today, by the way, August 1st, so Bible reading plan, the year is officially like over halfway over, okay? So I don't know how you're doing. It's less about completing the task and more about figuring out, okay, who, who is this God, right? Who is he? Who has he revealed himself to be? What is his nature? What is his character? Certainly the Apostles' Creed gives us a lot of context for that. The Apostles' Creed is based on God's word. So let's dive in. I don't know where you are in your reading plan. Just pick it up, okay? If it makes you feel better, just go ahead and check off a bunch of boxes and just pick up where we are, August 1st, okay? So as you dive into God's word, you begin to think well, think rightly, to think Christianly about God's nature and his character. I've been wrestling, so when I travel, I get to do a lot of reading. I enjoy reading a lot. Um, When I travel with kids, I don't get to read at all. But when I travel and it's just me or if it's me and Megan, I get to read a pretty good bit, okay? And one of the questions I kept kind of wrestling with is this question of who is God, right? And it's like, oh, duh, like basic question, bro. But seriously, who is God? Not who is God to me. That was the difference, Right? I think a lot of times we say, okay, well, who, God to me is this. No, not who is God to you. Who is God as he has revealed himself? That is what we're doing here. That is what the Apostles' Creed was given to us for. Right? So it's less about who he is to you. It's less about your relative truth. And I, I'm, this is not like a cultural slap. This is just a reality. Like You can make God be whoever you want him to be. And here's the, the scary truth is you can use this to make him whoever you want him to be. Okay? It can be abused. It can be used in ways that, um, frankly, aren't healthy, right? You've probably maybe seen some people on YouTube. Have you heard of YouTube? It's dangerous, right? But we must learn to think well about who God is, and this is what the creed was given for us. Uh, the, other, the other statement, that not, this is a statement, not a question, but I was really wrestling with, okay, who is God? Not who is God to me, but who is God the way he's revealed himself. But the whole deeds of a creed, have you heard this? Deeds of a creed, right? This is, um, this is, I'm going to do it because they're not going to turn my mic off. And if they do, it's a small room. I'll just shout. Deeds of a Creed is, it's not a new thing, right? It's kind of a historic thing. And, and the culture has always been trying to wrestle with, okay, creeds are, you know, it's mostly here, right? They're, they're in our brains. If, we're, if, if, if God is moving, the, it will seep down into our hearts. And if he's really done a work, then it'll seep into our hands and we'll start doing work in the world, right? But there's a whole, like, there was this whole movement of, okay, creeds, it's just about creeds in the Bible, like, and we're not going to do anything and we're just trusting God and we're going to be lazy Christians, okay? And then there was this, like, this, this pivot where uh, culture, Christian culture then said, okay, well, forget all that, 
Forget the head part, and let's just be active, right? And we saw this a lot in the, the missional movement in the early 2000s, where it just had to be about doing good, right? It had, less to, it had nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel was kind of like being drug along like a dog who doesn't want to go on a walk, right? I mean, it was like, we're doing all this thing. We're serving the poor. We're providing meals. We're doing all these good things, and maybe if you're lucky, we might possibly, I don't know if we will or not, we'll get to the gospel at some point right? That's, that's deeds over creeds, okay? The Christian faith is saying, no, because of what we believe, this is what we do. And we do it because it is good news, proclaiming the truth as we do, okay? Does that make sense? So this whole, you know, there was a, there was a uh, building, a church, really close to here, that their whole sign was deeds over creeds, right? Because I don't know what. They have a for, for sale sign, if you haven't noticed, in their yard, okay? So, you can say that all you want. There isn't lasting fruit there, okay? There's a guy, um, he's an English reformer. His name is uh, Hugh Latimer. He wrote, We ought never to regard unity so much that we would or should forsake God's word for her sake. Unity is great until it's not, okay? Unity is great until it's not. So, that's not a slap at the church here. I don't know if they just moved into a bigger building because universalism sells. I don't know. Um, if everybody gets in, Jesus didn't have to come. Okay? That's the, that's the raw truth of it. Okay? And that is what the creed is getting to this week. He will come to judge the living and the dead. From whence he shall come to judge the quick. Right? The quick and the dead. So up until this point, the creed has been almost entirely past tense. The whole thing, okay? I'm going to go through it real quick, okay? He was conceived and born, past tense, okay? He suffered, was crucified, he died, he was buried, past tense. He descended, he rose, and he ascended, past tense. He is seated, present tense, okay? This is the great hope that we have, that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and this is where the people say, Amen. He is seated. He wasn't once seated and then he was removed from his seat because he died. He was seated. He is sitting and he will continue to sit as the ultimate judge because he suffered, he was crucified, he died, he, was, he rose again, right? These are the things that make him king of kings, lord of lords, all right? And then all of a sudden we get to this line, this stanza. He will come. It's not past. It's not present. It is future. Specifically, in theological terms, it is eschatological. It is pointing towards a day that is coming. Okay? And this is where we place our hope. We hope for the things not seen. We hope for the things not yet. And this is where the creed takes, ultimately, its last real turn in its, its cadence. He will come. What I love here is that the creed is following Scripture. It's following this grand story, this meta-narrative of the gospel, of in the beginning there was the, the word, and the word was yes, right? And it was all good until it wasn't. The creation, the past, the present, this fallen state that we're living in, and this future eschatological hope that we have that one day all things will be made new because he is 
coming. This feels a little bit like tent revival kind of stuff. I'm not going to do that. We were joking earlier about having some hot seats. If you don't know church history, they used to like really put pressure on people. So if you wanted to get pizza, you had to get saved first. Um, it's, it's a really, yeah, people get baptized when you offer them things, right? So they would put this, like a hot bench, and, and there are guys that will go unnamed who repented of their sin later, but they would make people, like, they would just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on, kind of like last week, until, um, <laughs> that was the last one. That one, I've noted that one, okay? I'm just kidding. But they would, they would put pressure on people to come get saved, right? And so the, the, the revival would last until people just got, okay, if, if he's going to keep going, like, I'll go. It'll, I'll, I'll take one for the team. And then they would come down, and then Finney would get down, and he would be fine, okay? So what we're doing here is not that, okay? What we're trying to do is we're trying to put, not guardrails, but really a kind of ignition to this hope that we have that Christ is going to come back. It's hard to see it in a world that we live in. It seems like, Lord, this seems like everything that you wrote about, everything that you left for us, is it going to be today or is it going to be tomorrow? Certainly it's not that far in the future. Like everything seems to not be going well, okay? We're, we're better, we're not better, we hate each other, we love each other, but we really hate each other. And it just seems like everything, including the Olympics, I'm a big Olympic guy, everything is so fractured. Humanity is so fractured. It must have a savior and it must come quickly, Okay? What we're trying to do is saying, hey, as Christians, this good news, this hope, this gospel that we have is pointing towards a day that's coming, and that day is going to be a good day. Okay? From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So from the past, this meta-narrative, the Christian gospel is being expressed really in story form of past, present, and future, and that's what we see here. Our sin, our past sin, our original sin, and what God is doing, what he has done through Christ, right? In this present state is how we respond. That's what we're doing here, if you didn't know. Corporate worship is our response to a good God. It's our response to the gospel. We weren't called to live in isolation. We weren't called to live in division. And I think one of the great dangers of this whole, whole COVID thing has been that Christians think they can survive alone. Right? That is the great danger, and I'm, that's not a political statement. That's the reality. I'm seeing it everywhere. Christians think they can do it by themselves because now for the first time, the church isn't where it was. The doors are locked and closed. Oh, but it's on Facebook, so I'm good. We were, we were supposed to sit next to each other. You're also supposed to sit in the front row, which is always open. So feel anytime you want, right? And then this future bit, we hope with this confidence in anticipation. That's really what it is. It's an anticipation. It's going to be like he will come. And we're in this, this weird point in human history of we just, keep, we just keep doing this. We keep looking forward like, God, this, one day this will all be made new. All of it. Vaccines, no vaccines, COVID, no COVID, hating people because of their color of their skin, not hating people because one day all of that goes away. And we stand in glory before God, the creator of the entire universe. Every inch, all of it. And you know what we're worried about? Just, just him. Just all of them. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In perfect unity for the first time ever. Well, since the garden. And we worship. Hallelujah. And amen. So let's dive in a little bit to the text. If you have your Bible... That's the challenge of, of the creed. Is we're, we're trying to 
figure out, okay, where are we in God's story? I want to start, if you want to, put a finger in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to spend a good bit of time there. Not a, not a good bit, but just a little bit, okay? Um, but we're going to start in Revelation. And um, we don't go to Revelation a lot, do we? But let's do it. I think we have to, to understand the future. This is Revelation 19. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to just read verse 11. Know that there's a verse 12, okay? So maybe today when you get home, read, read the rest of it. But this is John writing, and he says, this is the vision that he's been given. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. My Bible, the ESV, has an exclamation point behind a white horse, okay? There is importance in the details, okay? If it comes on any other kind of horse, it isn't this, all right? A white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, capital F, capital T. Faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He being Christ the King, who came incarnate as a baby, born into the world as a, a little infant. We have bunches of them around. Just take a look at how helpless they are, right? They're beautiful, and they're cute, and they're snuggly until they spit up in your face. And that was Jesus. That's how he came. Innocent, in the middle of night, unassuming, Really, the only people who knew he was coming was a couple guys out in the fields. The next time he's coming, it's going to be a little bit more noisy. It's going to be a little bit more attention-grabbing. It's going to be a little bit more violent. Okay? He, the one Jesus, sitting on it, the white horse, is called faithful and true. That is who he is. Okay? When we talk about, oh, gosh, we've got to really wrestle with who is God. He's faithful and true. There's a good start. Okay, let's flip over to Matthew 25, because we have to understand, okay, what is this judgment that we are talking about? So he is, he will come. That is our promise, okay? That's a promise in God's word. That's a promise that we're reviewing in the creed. But why is he coming? What is he going to do? He's going to come to judge the living and the dead. This is Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man, what's his name? Faithful and true. When faithful and true comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Verse 34. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, from the beginning. From the beginning. So who is coming to do the judging? Jesus is the judge. Okay? John chapter 5 tells us that the Father judges no one. Okay? The Father is not the judge. This is why Trinitarian theology is so important. It's one God. Three persons, one God, three persons, different roles, right? They do different things. The Father does not do the judging. I almost just flicked you all off. It would have been an accident, okay? <laughs> this was the thing that I was going to try to show you, but then I was like, just put them all up, man, okay? They all do different things, right? The Father is not the judge. The Son is the judge. And what does the Son come to judge? 
He comes to judge because he has been judged. By who? By us. We crucified him. Okay? We did that. I did it. You did it. Okay? So you're not innocent here in this room. We gather as a people who are made innocent by the work of the only one who was ever innocent, but we are, ourselves are not innocent. Okay? We are to be judged because we are guilty. All right? And we stand before the Father as innocent because the Son has judged us to be that. And not just judged us, but he's made the way. He's made the path. He has reconciled. He has taken the punishment upon himself. This is where we've been in the creed. He has taken it upon himself so that we might be made innocent. Guilty people can't be made innocent. Once found guilty, you are guilty. Okay, You serve your time and you can be let out or whatever the, the consequence is, but you will still be guilty. You're not made innocent except for in the Christian story, in the gospel, the good news. You are made innocent. Let's keep going. This Matthew 25 um, is, is really beautiful, and I think will help give us some context. This is verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There's a flip side, right? This is the holy, righteous judgment, okay? There's two sides to judgment. Those who are judged and found to be innocent, and those who are judged and be found to be guilty. Okay? This is God's word. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, or a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. What does it sound like? It sounds like movement. It sounds like the Christian's called to something different. Like we're called to action, right? We're called to do, right? So there is a, there is a deed element, right? We're going to come full circle. We're not called to just believe and then do nothing, and then just wait by and by until he comes back. We, we are called, because of what we believe, to do something. This is what Jesus is getting at. He will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment for the righteous, but the righteous, into eternal life. Okay? This judgment. There's two sides. Judge to be innocent, judge to be guilty. All right? This is what the creed is getting at. Let's go back to Revelation. Okay? Uh, this is in verse, uh, chapter 21. Okay? We've, I've gone here a few times over the course of the last couple of years as we've preached, but this is the climax of judgment, right? I think it's, it's true for us that what we believe about the future uh, will inform and fuel our present action, okay? 
we, we don't necessarily do because of what is in the past. Sometimes we're usually motivated by what's in the future. Okay? We might not do something because of what we learned in the past, but we, we start doing something because of what we hope for in the future. Does that make sense? Okay? I think this is why we go to college and we graduate from high school and move out of our parents' houses. Some of us, <laughs> not all of us. All right? What we believe about the future informs and fuels our present actions. So what does that mean? It means discipleship in all of its forms. So evangelism and mission, they're all eschatological activities, all of them. Everything we do is for a future end. Okay? So every time you have a conversation, even if it's a difficult one and it doesn't go well and you feel like you bombed it, it was a future conversation. Okay? Those seeds that are being planted, this is a real thing, right? So not every uh, gospel conversation goes well. Sometimes you get judged in the middle of them, and that's okay. That's part of it. All right? But those little micro seeds or the seeds that are being sowed in the lives of our children and those who are in here this morning, we can only pray that God will use them one day for renewal and salvation. Okay? So our job is not to worry about that. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to continue to push the gospel forward with the Holy Spirit as the closer, right? One of my least favorite things in um, the church world is when we talk about events, okay? So, and I'm not, I'm not bashing on events, but the, the one thing that always comes out of a big Christian event is how many people got saved, right? Like, way to go. You, you did great, right? You didn't do anything except to be a mouthpiece for God who's doing all of the work, okay? I've been, I've been preaching for a long time, all right? And people will come up afterwards and, and say, because of what you said, I believe in the gospel, right? That's a powerful statement, and it makes you, as a preacher, it makes you feel pretty daggum good. I didn't do anything. I, didn't con- I haven't converted a single heart, not one, not a single one. In fact, I would be willing to say I've done more harm for the kingdom than good when left to my own devices, my own wisdom, my own accord, my own speech, my own utterances, right? Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And I say that to give you power and to give you a little bit of freedom. As you go into whatever nook of the world that God's called you into, you're, you're just a communicator. You're not, the, you're not the deliverer, all right? You're the bearer, okay? So, Verse, uh, this is Revelation 21, all right? So what we've established so far is that we will be judged innocent because of Christ. Not because we are innocent or we deserve innocence or anything like that, but because of God's sovereign grace, we have been declared innocent. Listen to verse, chapter 21, and I'm going to read, I'm going to read the good, good lot of this. So this is verse 1. This is, this is the future, okay? This is the return. This is the reward, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy 
and true. These words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give them, give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I've come to believe, uh, in, as I've read through Scripture and spent my life trying to understand who is God, that the peace of God rides in the wake of righteous judgment. Okay, let me say that again. The peace of God rides in the wake of God's righteous judgment. That's, that's who he is. It is his character. And I know we live in a world that wants God to just be nice and kind and friendly and all the bubbly things, right? But there is a reality that if that were all he was, then he would fail to be sovereign. Because he's very clear that there's a penalty for sin. That penalty is death. And what does death bring us? It brings us separation from God. And the only thing that brings us back is the righteous work of God himself through the person of Jesus Christ, the Son, who came, who suffered, who died, who was buried, who rose again, and he will return. He's coming again to make all things new. That is the foundation of our faith. That is the Apostles' Creed. So we're going to move into a time of response uh, as we take communion. And here's, here's how we do this at the branch. If, you are a, if you're a baptized believer, if you're a professing Christian, we want you to come and partake as part of our family today, as part of the branch. Whether you're a member here or not a member here, if, you, if, if you're a brother and sister in Christ, join us in communion. We, we do this as a response to the gospel. Not that we get anything extra because we're taking communion or you don't get anything extra because you're not and you're sitting this one out, but that because God has called us to a rhythm, to a routine, and that's what we try to practice here, is that we go and we take the bread, we go and we take the cup, we remember that Christ suffered. We remember that his body was broken with each little piece of that bread, that his blood was poured out, every drop of it. He was poked with a spear to make sure the job was done. And we take that in remembrance of what he has done, but not just past tense, and not just that he's sitting at the throne of God the Father Almighty, but that he will come back. This is what we're hoping in. This is the promise that he gave us. It's not a work that's been accomplished. It's a work that he is doing, and he has promised to finish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for opportunities just to center around your word. As brothers and sisters, we, we come together in this rhythm of worship week after week, not because it gets us something extra, but because you have promised to meet us here as a family. And our prayer is that week after week, we would encourage and exhort and point and push and pull all of us to a deeper understanding of who you are. Would you reveal yourself to us day after day, moment by moment? God, we pray specifically for our kids 
that these truths would dwell, dwell deeply in their hearts and minds. And God, we pray that because of what we believe, that we would become doers of the gospel, that our creed would inform our deed, and that our deeds would be used by you to transform the world for your kingdom, for your glory, and for your renown. We love you. We pray now as we move into this time of communion that you would go before us. We thank you for your son Jesus, who suffered, who died, was buried, and rose again. He descended into hell. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will return to judge the living and the dead and make all things new in his time according to your will. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.